0: This summer uh, we've been in uh, Romans. We've been in a series called uh, Paul's Gospel, and it's been cool. This is the end, though. We're we're finishing it. This is the end. Uh, It's so sad. I feel like we could I could go on Romans for for years. Um, In fact, Arch actually did that a couple of times. Really, uh, just knocked it out. You know, two three years. We're only gonna hit ten weeks, but hey, we'll come back to it because it's awesome. but one of the things that we've been seeing over and over again is that uh, Paul's surprise, and, and really all of the world and all of Judaism's surprise, that the, the Messiah of God is not what they expected. Jesus comes as a, as a, as a crucified and raised and exalted Lord who sends the Spirit uh, and creates the church. That was a shocker. No one saw that coming. And as a result, Paul's had to recalibrate and rethink everything that he used to know or thought he knew about, about God and death and, and life and, and heaven and everything. And uh, one of the questions that we might ask, not just for Paul, but for us as well, you know, if that's the case, right? If, 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 if God can do stuff in a way that's super, super totally surprising and no one saw it coming and it's this mystery and it's a secret— well, if that's the case, can we really count on God? Right? Because we have these expectations. We're like, okay, God, um, you know, you're know, you this, this, and this. And that means you ought to do X, Y, and Z. Can we really count on that? Is that something that we can bank on? And today's text uh, is going to be where Paul's wrestling with that very question in something that's very personal to him. Okay? Okay. Uh, just a little background. When the gospel went out, Paul's writing 20, 25 years after Jesus is raised from the dead. And uh, during that time, the gospel's gone out. And what's been very surprising to people is that, uh, yeah, some Jewish people believe in the Messiah, right? Like the first apostles, Paul himself, the first Christians are all Jewish. But by and large, the elites, the uh, the wealthy uh, the religious leaders and the political uh, power players, by and large, either reject Jesus as the Messiah, or they're like, eh, we'll wait and see. And so as a result, the nation of Israel kind of is like, uh, is this, this isn't really the Messiah. And, this is, and, and Paul's kind of gobsmacked by this, and all of the Jewish Christians are gobsmacked by this. And so if that's the case, if the Jews are being rejected by God, and God's been making all these promises to Israel for all these years and now he's just leaving them behind? If that's the case, then we can't count on God. We, we can't trust God because God might switch, you know, God's horses in the middle of the race. So let's read uh, what Paul says about Israel. This is uh, Romans eleven twenty four. 24. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. Don't worry, I'm going to hold your hand through this. If this is weird, like, don't worry, worry, we're going to explain all this. Uh, Grafted. uh, How much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So that you, Gentile Christians, may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters. I want you to understand this mystery or this secret. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles will come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, Out of Zion will come the Deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake, because they're rejecting it. But as regards election, by God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, So they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Just uh, take a closer look at the text there. Uh, Paul's starting out with a metaphor. He's using uh, the metaphor of an olive tree to describe the people of God. In the ancient world, uh, there were two types of, 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 olive trees. And so he's, he's talking about the wild olive tree. That's Gentiles. That's people who didn't, who were unfamiliar with the, the oracles of God, didn't know the, the Hebrew scriptures or the Bible in their, in their, the way they thought about it. Um, and then there's the natural, the cultivated, the, uh, the good olive tree. And that's Israel. That's the, the people of God who, um, who are naturally, like, they've, they've been shaped by Isra- They've been shaped by the Bible. They've been shaped by the instruction in Torah and Mosaic law. They've been shaped by the prophets. I have a couple pictures here. Of One is a, a wild olive tree in Palestine, a contemporary Palestine. The other is a cultivated olive tree. Can you tell the difference? So let's have a raise, uh, hands here. Who thinks that the cultivated olive tree is on the left? Get your votes up, friends. This is democracy. This is how we run things in this country. We like to suppress minorities when they're, they're outgunned. Uh no, uh I don't know which one I said, but uh, the cultivated one is on the left. It's uh the the one on the right is a wild olive tree. It's prettier, I think. Uh but that's probably because of the 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 water in the background. Uh there's a difference between wild and cultivated olive trees and it's so significant that in the ancient world this is a true fact they had different uh different words, different uh words to describe cultivated and wild olive trees. In fact, they thought of them as different species of trees. Uh, So, in in the same way that we would think of dogs and cats as different species of animals, uh, ancient people, starting with Aristotle some five centuries before Christ, thought of cultivated and and wild olive trees as different species. And the reason is, if you look on the left there, a cultivated olive tree has really, really thick trunk and super, super deep roots and can support a massive amount of branches and big, fat, juicy. are, Are olives juicy? Yes? Okay. Whatever a good olive is. I don't like olives. I think they're gross. Uh, they're, they're terrible. Green olives? Blech. I like the black ones in a salad, preferably with like a lot of egg and ham and ranch on top of them. But anyway, in the ancient world, you didn't have a lot of options, so I guess you had to enjoy olives. And, they had, and so a cultivated olive tree had big, fat, plump, juicy, green, bitter olives. And that was great. And you could make oil out of that, and you could eat those. Uh, but wild olive trees, actually, interestingly enough, even when they got fat, even when they even when they were really old, you actually have pictures of these. The the inside actually hollows out because there's no one tending them, and they're they're very they have weak roots. They have very small, bitter, um, ultra bitter uh, fruit, and it's very difficult to make olives uh, olive oil from them. To the point that ancient people were like. Cultivated olive trees are they're like dogs and, and, and uh, wild olive trees are like cats. One's good and one's bad. Just like dogs are good and cats are bad. In the same way, <laughs> wild olive trees were bad and cultivated ones were good. So what Paul's saying is he's like, hey, you Gentiles, you guys are dirty, nasty cats. You're weak, failure of wild olive trees with your bitter, nasty herbs. But guess what? A miracle happened. Just as odd as, it w- as we would think it would be for like a dog and a cat to try and mate and have uh, children together, ancient peoples were fascinated by the fact that uh, wild olive branches could actually be grafted into natural olive trees and they could grow. They thought, they thought this was mind-boggling. It, it should not have worked because by nature, even as Paul used that word by nature, physis, where we get our word physics, by nature, this shouldn't be right because they're different species. And yet, over time, if you take, like, a wild olive branch and you find a spot for it in, uh, in, a, in a cultivated tree, over time, it will take on the, the attributes of a tree and eventually will grow to be strong and sturdy and, and have those big, fat, plump, delicious green olives. And Paul's like, hey, if that's possible... You know, that's like a miracle that you dirty Gentiles should even be allowed into the people of God. You know what would make a lot more sense? Is if people who, by nature, were part of the cultivated olive tree, that is, Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus, Jewish people who haven't received the gospel, if they were brought back in, how quickly would they adapt to the natural tree? That's what they're from. That's where they belong. It took you guys years to learn about, about God and to be the kinds of people who can have these, these fat olives. But they, they belong here. This is natural for them. This is good for them. And so Paul's convinced, based on this metaphor, based on his thinking, that uh, this first thing here, no cheats, that God's not done with disbelieving Jewish people. God's not done. Going on in the text, uh, notice this. Uh, God says, I want you to understand this secret, Gentiles. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And be honest with you, I don't know how you feel about anti-Semitism. I'm not a fan. Um, and to be quite honest, Christian history has been a little bit uh, sketchy. I'm going to say this. I think the atheists are much worse to the Jews than Christians, but Christians haven't been great. And part of it is because there's texts like this where there's a hardening of of, of Israel. They're they're resisting you. Later, he become, later Paul says they're enemies of the gospel. Uh, in uh, in his old age, Martin Luther uh, produced a text that I do not recommend you read. It's "Fonten uh, Juden und ihren Lügen." That's on the left there. It's uh, 1546 on the Jews and their lies. It's a 65,000-word rant about um, Jews. Uh, Early on in his career, Martin Luther was pretty friendly to the Jews, but when he he thought they were all going to become Lutherans, Protestant Christians, uh, they were like, nah. And he was like, oh, well, then I hate you. And uh, near the end of his career, he was pretty naughty to the Jews and said some horrible things, things that were actually— that that text um, was embraced by the Nazis uh, during uh, World War II, used uh, as a way for the— (laughs) <laughs> they call it the Evangelical Church of Germany to um, proselytize uh, Christians to hate the Jews and to sign off on the Nazi death camps. True fact. On the right there, that's the um, Frankenfurter Judengasse pogrom of 1614. Frankenfurter Judengasse is the, uh, the Frankfurt um, Jewish ghetto that lasted for about 500 years um, in Germany. Uh, that, this is a celebratory... Um, Art, artistic rendering of when the European Christians invaded the ghetto and, uh, and took all of the things that they felt they were owed uh, by their Jewish neighbors. Let it just be said that um, there's always been a massive dissenting voice in Christianity against anti-Semitism, uh, and that's because good Christians <laughs> or competent Christians don't just stop reading the part where you know, they're going to be hardened. They don't just stop when it says they're enemies for the sake of the gospel. Uh, A good reader reads with Paul and keeps going to the next part. And I want us to do that. Uh, I want us to do that. Let's keep reading what Paul says. Understand this secret that God's revealing. There is going to be a hardening. A hardening has come upon part of Israel. Now, did you notice the verb passive voice here? Has come upon part of Israel. Until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. I hate the passive voice. I think it's a terrible way to write. If you use the passive voice, you're bad at writing. So instead of saying, uh, this paper was written badly, say I say to my students, you wrote a bad paper. You see the difference? Instead of, oh, a, a badly written paper descended upon my desk, I'm like, you wrote a bad paper. I assign, you know, blame. Uh, it's not like magically it just so happened that a badly written paper appeared. No, someone did it. They're responsible. Well, Paul's not a bad writer. He just happens to be Jewish, and Jewish people tend to avoid or uh, they don't like to name God when God's doing stuff, and so there's a thing called the divine passive. It's a way that Jewish authors often write where when God's actually doing something, they, uh, they, they're like, eh, I don't want to... point point out who God is. They're a little bit superstitious about that sometimes. And I think Paul's doing that right now. It's not a hardening has come upon part of Israel. It's God has hardened part of Israel. Okay? Until God gathers in all the Gentiles. How does this work? Well, imagine again that you're following Paul's metaphor, right? You've got an olive tree, and the olive tree is super big, right? But it's not unlimited space. In fact, if we're going to go around all the wild olive trees everywhere in the world and we're going to gather in those branches, they need a place to sit. They need a place to go. And so what Paul thinks has happened is he thinks that God has taken a small portion of Israel or a portion of Israel and he's allowed those branches to come off the, the, the people of God, olive trees, so that new wild branches can be put in. And over time, those branches are going to become naturalized, and then the tree is going to get bigger and bigger, and there's going to be space again to put the Jewish people back. What does this have to do with, can we count on God? And moreover, so, you know, you're the Roman Christians, Paul's writing this to you. You might want to ask, well, Paul, why do you think this is the case? What what makes you think this is true? Like, it's cool that you have that opinion. But see, the Christians uh, of Rome, probably like us, they're like, but, but Paul, I mean, that's just you saying stuff. How do we know that what you're saying is true? Well, like, we would ask, or you would hopefully ask of me if I'm just saying stuff. You're like, yeah, Tom, but where is it in the Bible? Right? Well, they would say the same thing. But of course, they didn't know that Paul was writing the Bible. Their Bible was the Hebrew Bible. It was the, it was the Jewish Bible. The next thing in your note sheets is uh, that God is waiting to fulfill his promise to Israel until the Gentiles have heard and believed. So that's what Paul thinks, and now Paul's going to prove his case. He's going to say, ah, this isn't just crazy Paul saying stuff. This is the truth, and let me show you how it's the truth. So he goes on in the text. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. Out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish unguidliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul's quoting uh, two places in Deuteronomy here, fifty-nine, twenty, and also 27-9. But there's something that brings those two texts together. In both of them, in 59-20 and in 27-9, he references Jacob. The prophet repre- uh, uh, talks about Jacob. If you've been in church for a while, you may know that Jacob is sometimes used interchangeably as a name for Israel. So you could say Jews, or Hebrews, or Israel, or Judah, or Jacob. There's lots of different names that get used. So you might just read right over that, but that's not a good way to read. For the following reason. May we see two contemporary weddings... If you look there on the left, I hope you can see it. Uh, This is a couple. They're probably from New York City. Um, Also, for the record, when I'm making fun of, like, Boston or New York, I I don't really care about New York or Boston. I just like to make fun of power centers and elite people. I just think that's fun. Uh, So it's not that I really have anything against New York, but it is awful, and and here's why. If you look at these two New Yorkers, okay, they're getting ready for their wedding, and if you're looking, instead of smiling like most people do when they're about to get married, these two are smirking. It's very interesting. Uh, I, I, I hope you can see it. Like She's like, a wedding, can you believe it? What a waste of time. And he's like, dude, whatever. I'm going back to Wall Street, you know. And yeah, maybe this will work out. Maybe it won't. Who cares? But it's fun to have a party. Um, weddings are silly. And, uh, you know, I, hey, once I make my money, if she, if she can't keep it together, I'll just kick her out, um, you know, trade in for a new model, and she's like, and that'll be fine with me, you know, I'll get the kids, and he's going to have to half of his money. He works for Goldman Sachs. I'm going to be fine. I don't even know why we're bothering with this whole marriage thing. On the right, uh, we have a, an arranged marriage in India. Uh, the, this couple, um, this is the first day that they've met and so you might notice that their smiles are a little bit forced. She's like ah, ha, ha. and he's like ha, oh, I did all right. Good job, family. Way to go. Yes. Did you know that uh, in in modern India, only uh, one out of every one hundred marriages ends in a divorce? Did you know that uh, seventy, depending on who you ask, between seventy three and ninety percent of Indian young people want to have an arranged marriage as opposed to, like, you know, a love marriage, right? Did you also know that uh, Indian couples who have gone through arranged marriage later in life uh, have much higher rates of uh, personal and, and marital satisfaction than uh, both their, their cohorts of other Indians who married for love and their Western counterparts, all of us, because we all married for love, you know. Like, but, but it turns out that the statistics do not lie. The, the Indian couples are happier <laughs> than we are. Huh. And you might wonder why that is. Wait, well, just for the record, I love Aaron. We're doing great. That's it's not, it's not the... And our, our marriage was partially arranged, uh, true fact. My dad, when he met her, he was like, "You'll marry my son." That was the first thing he said to her uh, when they met, and she laughed at him. <laughs> the last laugh is ours. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. So, in an Indian, my buddy Era, when I was in college, my buddy Era was uh, he was a first generation Indian American. His parents were from India. He grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He had an accent. It was uh, shocking the first time you were thinking, like, hey, how's it going? You're like, what? Okay. Anyway, uh, all through college, she was stressed out because his parents wanted him to get an arranged marriage. And he'd converted to Christianity secretly and they didn't know. And it was this big drama thing. And we were all like, yeah, man, why would you? How, can you imagine someone choosing your wife for you? What a disaster that would be. I mean, it's like we're all living in Aladdin, right? She's like, my father's going to choose. Uh, I, I, if I marry, I want to marry for love. And we're like, yeah, America. You know, like that, that's how we operate And I'm not saying that's bad, I'm just saying, statistically speaking, smirking New York couple are not going to do as well as surprised, excited Indian couple. And one of the, probably one of the reasons is is that the Indian couple's families have been involved in this match, okay? So his family is like, we know this guy real well. He's an idiot because he's in his 20s, so he doesn't know anything. Uh, he thinks he knows everything because he's in his 20s, but he doesn't. We've been around a lot longer. He, we, he thinks he knows, who he, is. he doesn't know a thing about what he wants. We know what he wants. We know who he is. And so they go through this massive vetting process. It's crazy the way, the way Indian, uh, marriages work where like hundreds of candidates are like there's, there's just networks of people who are meeting and the, like they do it online now. I mean, it's like, like indiandating.com, whatever. And they, and they, they, they get a whole group of candidates and they go through and like the whole family gets involved like nope, 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 nope. Ah, oh, this is a maybe. Ah, oh, put this one in this column. Blah blah blah. Her family's doing exactly the same thing. What are they doing? They're filtering out all the rascals. Yeah, th- th- here's the crazy thing about love: is that we know that love something that's easy to fake for a little while. We know that being a good person is easy to fake for being a wh- for a while, but on the long term. Everything comes to light. And so smirking New York couple, they don't really know each other at all, even though they've been living together for three years. Ironically, the families of the Indian couple know these partners way better than the smirking New York couple know each other. All of the rascals, all the red flags, they've been set aside. All the bad apples have been kicked out, and they've narrowed it down. We know what he's like and what would be good for him, and, and we know what will make for a good, solid family. We know what's going to make for a union of people that is going to generate children, that's going to survive, that's going to last. We know what's, what's right for these folks, and we're going to work together to make it happen. Because no one wants to end up with a rascal No one wants to end up with a bad apple. No one wants to end up with someone who's untrustworthy. No one wants to end up with someone who shows up for their wedding with a smirk. The interesting thing is that every time you see the word Jacob in the Old Testament, Jacob was a rascal. Jacob was a trickster, a liar, a swindle, a cheat. Jacob was a guy that no one wanted their daughter to marry. In fact, his, uh, his relative kind of puts off his, his unmarriageable daughter onto Jacob because, heh, his problem now. Jacob was the kind of guy he couldn't trust. He fought all of his life against God. All of the, it literally wrestles with God. There's a, a scene where he's like wrestling with God, like, I'm going to do things my way. And God's like, no, you're not. He's like, yes, I am. He's like, no, you're not. Jacob's the last kind of person that you want to end up with. And yet, did you notice the text? Out of Zion will come to deliver. He will banish ungodliness from the rascals. And this is my covenant with the rascals. That part of Israel that's, that's recalcitrant and fights and kicks and is nasty and naughty. I'm going to covenant with them too. I'm going to take away their sins. Why? Because I made a promise to them. And the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. See, unlike you and me, God is actually in the business of getting together with rascals. God's actually in the business of looking for people who aren't that great. People who will fight them, kick and and scream and say, no, no, no. God's in the business of looking for them, finding them, and says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to be your God. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because once I've called you, once I've extended my grace to you, I'm locked in. And you can kick and you can run and you can fight, but I'm going to wrestle you to the ground. And I'm going to take you. You're mine now. And Paul's looking around and he sees a whole lot of Jews who are acting like Jacob. They're not, they're not acting like nice, good, goody-two-shoes Israel. We love you, God. They're acting like Jacob, like anything you do, I'm doing the opposite And he remembers that the prophet, and all throughout the Old Testament, God said, even the Jacobs I'm going for, even the rascals I want, and I'm not going to quit on them. It's next thing your note sheets. God makes and keeps promises to rascals. And one of the things that Paul's doing in this text is he's looking at the Gentiles and being like, what, you think you're not rascals too? You don't think God's been putting up with your nonsense for thousands of years? You don't think that when God looked at you, he was like, wow, you're not something I hoped that I would have to work with, but here we go. What I've held from you uh, so far is um, the way that Paul uh, kind of ends this chapter in Romans. This is chapter 11 of Romans, and it's, it's, this, it's a profound and beautiful um, way where he's, he, he's sitting there, and he's like, look, this isn't just my opinion, guys. God's after uh, the Jews because God doesn't quit. God's not, he's not the kind of God that just gives up. He's, he's gracious and he's faithful, And and so I know, I can bank on it. He said in his word, he's going to keep coming for Israel. At some point, once all y'all Gentiles have come in, and once you've been grafted into the tree, God's going to go out and he's going to get the rest of the Jews. He's not going to quit. And so, looking at this, this is not something Paul expected. This is not something Paul could have predicted. But he knows it's true in his bones. And so he says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. This is the thing. If, if, if you were to go to Paul and say, like, Paul, can we count on God to save so-and-so tomorrow? Paul would be like, no. Nah, God's doing something. I don't know what God's like. Have you seen what God's... His plans are nuts. No one would have seen this coming. It's beautiful and it's glorious and I love it, but that is not how... It, so no, I can't count on God to do what I want or expect or demand of him. Because God's got this super deep, super inscrutable, wacky way of going about things that is totally unexpected and yet is in keeping with who God is. You notice this for from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, everything that is that is is a gracious gift. All comes from God. And not only that it doesn't just come from him, it comes through him. That means that God mediates that gift to us, and that means he's faithful, right? God doesn't just stop giving those gifts. The gifts come from God. They're through him, so it's gracious, and it's faithful, and ultimately it's to him. We said last week, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, and you will. And no matter who you are, where you've been, or whatever, at one point in the future, everyone's knee goes down, everyone's tongue confesses all this grace, all this faithfulness is going to be a testimony to the glory and honor and and, and majesty of God forever and ever. Amen. Can I count on God to make sure my, my ingrown fingernail gets better? No. No, you can't. but well, uh, the next picture here this is cool this is, uh, it's hard to make out I zoomed in pretty far but if you look on the left kind of top left can you see how that sort of looks like the Statue of Liberty? it's blurry you see it there? like the okay, well that's this is a picture and, and just imagine just imagine that we're all in that picture there, it looks like it's hard to say for sure but I think there's like there's like Maybe three people for three or four people in front of the Statue of Liberty, okay and there it is that 's blown up. I got the highest resolution photo I could, and I blew it up as much as I could, and It gets blurry, but let 's just imagine that 's us we 're having a great day we 're we 're living the dream we 're in New York City, and uh, we see the statue of Liberty, and we 're having a great time we 're like, man, this is what life is all about. this is the best. At the same time, however, a whole lot of things uh, other things are going on, okay? And it's hard to see what they are cuz the, the the pictures are so blurry. So, let's zoom out a little bit. Zoom out. Okay. Now, if you're looking for the Statue of Liberty, it's still at the top left corner of your screen. If you kind of squint, you can start to see it. But you can see that there's a whole bunch of other things that are happening. All, all pictures of people living life. And so, yeah, we're, we're at that top left corner. We're out living the dream. It's Statue of Liberty. We're doing our thing. But there's a million other things going on. And, and it's difficult for us, with our limited, weak perspective, to see or even imagine all the other stuff that's happening. There's pictures of cats, and there's people walking on the beach, and there's wedding photos, and there's smiles, and there's all All kinds of, let's zoom out again, zoom out again, zoom out some more. Wow, there's a billion things happening. What, I guess, eight billion? How many people are there on the earth right now? Is it eight billion? Jeez, we really got to colonize Mars, friends. We're running out of space. It's time. Anyway, there's like eight billion things going on, and every single one of those people has a limited perspective. They can't imagine or think all of the stuff that's happening. Let's zoom out one last time. And they don't realize that the big picture is God's loving, gracious faithfulness that lasts forever and ever. Paul's like, can I count on God to make sure that Shlomo and Moshe um, believe? No. I can't. But I can count on God to keep his promises. I can count on God to be gracious and faithful and loving. I can count on God to be the one from whom all is, through whom all is, and to whom all will be glory forever and ever. And so I don't know how it's all going to work out. But you may remember Romans eight twenty eight, I do know that all things work together for good. And so when we ask the question, this is really the question that animates Paul in a lot of ways throughout Romans, is can we count on him? Can we count on God? Well Paul says this we don't know how it will work out, but we do know that it will work out for good. Uh, Wherever you're at uh, today, there's a lot of different places. Mom, just leave this uh, slide up. I don't want to go further. But wherever you're at, uh, you probably have some expectations or desires or maybe even demands of God's faithfulness. Like, God, if you're really gracious and you're really faithful, you're going to do X, Y, or Z for me. God, if you're really good and you're really faithful and you're really gracious and you're really loving, then this must be the case. It has to be. Otherwise, I just don't know that I can believe in you anymore. I just don't know that you're really, truly gracious, loving, and, and, and caring. And, and, and I wonder, I wonder if we are set in this narrow vision, this, 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 this narrow mind. Where it's just us and the Statue of Liberty, and that's it. And, and we're missing the huge, huge olive tree that is all of God's desire for the Gentiles and for the Jews and for everyone in the universe to come and kneel down and confess Jesus Christ as Lord forever and ever to God be the glory. And so I'm asking everyone here, just think about that thing where you're demanding, oh God, it's got to be like this, and say, you know what, no. Instead, God, I'm going to trust you with this thing, and I'm going to say, I can count on you to work it out for good. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much um, for your faithfulness and your love and your grace. Thank you that even though we can't perceive how it's going to work out, God, it will work out and work out for good. Lord, we love you. We, we ask for eyes of faith. We, we thank you for, for Paul's gospel and the way that we can see your goodness and your faithfulness, even in topsy-turvy, even paradigm shifting, even in weird and unexpected ways, that you remain true to yourself and you remain true to your people and you never quit. We love you and praise you now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.